The scripture this morning is um, from Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 6. Um, it's on page 984 in the Pew Bibles and will also be on the screen. If you could stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If, then, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, 
which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is God's word. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who speaks and that by your spirit we have the opportunity to listen. And so we pray that your spirit would be at work through your word this morning to help us hear you, uh, to help us uh, be changed and transformed more and more to be like Jesus. So meet us, we pray, and be honored as we look into your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. In July of uh, 1861, several hundred residents of Washington, D.C. packed their lunches and loaded their buggies and set out down the road 25 miles to Manassas, Virginia, in order to watch from the sidelines what would become the first major battle of the Civil War. Witnesses recalled seeing a throng of sightseers. Uh, with one woman kind of staying there, peering through an opera glass, getting all giggly whenever she would hear a volley of gunfire, kind of like binoculars at a football game or something. As some of you have heard this story before, you know uh, how it goes. When the Confederate reinforcements arrived, the Union army was forced to retreat, and the spectators were no longer spectators. Because they were blocking the way, the path of retreat for the Union soldiers. And they were caught up in the battle itself. Uh, Some of them were shot at. One congressman was kidnapped and, and held in prison for five months. They showed up like they were going to an opera with their wine and their cheese or, or like a football game with their bag of peanuts only to behold what was the bloodiest battle in American history up to that point. They acted like spectators, and they should have acted like soldiers. When we think about the Christian life, what it means to walk with Jesus, to obey Christ and walk with Him, and when we think about that Christian life, in terms of what Christ has done for us. How everything that we were to be and to do, but have failed at before God, Jesus is and does that on our behalf, as our Savior, as our representative. When we think of the Christian life in those terms, as we must, as we've been trying to do over the last several weeks, talking about how the the gospel, the good news of Jesus, applies to our own personal life hearts and lives. When we do that, there's a subtle but very real temptation to begin to kind of approach the Christian life like a spectator. To think that pursuing intimacy with Christ or battling against sin is something that we just kind of sit back and watch God do for us. I mean, after all, the gospel is news, right? We've been pounding that over and over. It's news of what God has done. It's not advice for what you should go and do. 
doesn't that make the Christian life essentially passive? If it's news and not advice? I mean, after all, if we emphasize working hard at obedience, aren't we kind of saying what Jesus did isn't enough? Or aren't we threatening to kind of steal his glory for ourselves if, if I actually have to work hard at it? We're under grace, not law. We don't need to worry that much about sin now that we have Jesus. We just sit back and watch him, you know, like a superhero, beat it up or something. I mean, it feels like that should kind of make sense. The problem is that's not how the New Testament describes our relationship with Christ, though, is it? I mean, yes, we are called to rest in Jesus and depend fully on his finished work. It was enough. We're we're called to depend on his strength, not our own. Absolutely and yes, fully indeed. Yet when the New Testament talks about walking in obedience or pursuing holiness, we also see words like toil and struggle, fight, work, strain, run, discipline, press on, strive, be all the more diligent, make every effort. All of those words talked about, used to describe our call to pursue holiness in our relationship with Christ. That's not sideline behavior. That's not spectator posture. That's what you do on the field. That's what you do as part of the battle. Through the gospel, God enlists us in the battle for holiness. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. How the gospel of Jesus produces personal holiness in our lives. We've been, again, talking about the gospel for all of life, how, how the gospel changes us personally, and we've looked at our identity in Christ and our satisfaction. We've talked about uh, realities of personal struggles like depression. We've talked about hope. We need to talk about holiness as well, that, that even though the gospel finds us as we are, it doesn't leave us as it finds us, but God changes us through his grace. How does he do that? How does the good news of Jesus make us more and more like Christ in how we think and how we speak and how we act, what we say? How does it help us sin less and love God and others more? That's what we're going to talk about. But out of the chute, it's critical to understand that this process of growing in personal holiness and fighting against sin, what we often call sanctification, that this is not a passive process. There's no let go and let God here. This is a fight that Jesus enlists us in, even though he's the one who supplies all of the strength for the battle. He's already won the war. He's already defeated sin through his life, death, and resurrection on the cross. But sin continues to fight against us. It doesn't want to go down easily. And it tries to take us down with it. Paul says in Romans 7.21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Do you ever feel that? You know, you know what you're supposed to do in following God. You want to do it. And you go to do it, 
And then all of a sudden, it's like you're caught in this tractor beam, you know, by a spaceship pulling you in the opposite direction. There's some desire pulling you away. I want to do, but there's this battle in my heart actually warring against what I know I should do. What is that? Where does that come from? It's the residue of the old man. It's the sin that remains in me. Our hearts are at war within us. There is a battle raging inside our hearts right now. The battle between the flesh and the spirit. And Galatians 5.17 describes it like this. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And we feel that. We think, well, that shouldn't be the case. Now that I have Jesus, this should be easy, right? And yet there's this enemy that remains. And we cannot afford to underestimate that foe. And so pursuing holiness, becoming more and more like Jesus in how we live is necessarily a battle against indwelling sin. It's a battle. Sin is a deadly enemy even for the Christian. And so we can't live like spectators. We can't underestimate our foe. Uh, British Puritan John Owen said in his classic work on sin and temptation, sin is always acting, always conceiving, Always seducing and tempting. To dare to stand still is to lose the battle. To dare to stand still is to lose the battle. And so we look at our passage this morning in Colossians 3, and we see that God issues a call to arms in this struggle for holiness. Colossians 3, 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, or as the old King James puts it, mortify what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The call to to personal holiness is an urgent call to put sin to death in our lives. To take it seriously and to seek to put it down and get rid of it, to wipe it out. Owen explains, he's saying here, Paul's saying, make it your daily occupation. Do not cease from this work. Be killing sin or it will kill you. Be killing sin or it will kill you. There's no neutrality or passivity in this fight. Now, if you were at our all-church retreat at Sandy Island last fall, some of this should sound familiar to you because this was the subject that we talked about together that weekend. But it bears repeating, I I think. Uh, In fact, often. uh, I need it for my own life, and, and I think it's good for us to look at this question together. And so what does it mean to mortify sin? What does it mean to put it to death? What in the world is Paul talking about? Sinclair Ferguson describes it like this. It is the constant battle. Can you all hear me? Is it, it feels a little bit low. Okay, thank you. Sorry. Um, it's the constant battle against sin 
which we fight daily. That's what it means to be putting sin to death. It's the constant battle against sin which we fight daily. The refusal to allow the eye to wander, the mind to contemplate, the affections to run after anything which will draw us away from Christ. It's the deliberate rejection of any sinful thought, suggestion, desire, aspiration, deed, circumstance, or provocation at the moment we become conscious of its existence. So I'm going to read that last line again because there's a lot going on there and a lot to think about. It's the deliberate rejection of any sinful thought, suggestion, desire, aspiration, deed, circumstance, or provocation at the moment we become conscious of its existence. And that last part, I think, is, is the hardest, to, to just reject it right at the moment we become, we become aware of it. Because, frankly, our hearts, as we sing in the, in the hymn, they're prone to wander. We, we tend to coddle sin. We kind of flirt with the eye, even though we know I'm never going to do that. We kind of dream about what would it be like to do that. And, and, and we, uh, we tolerate it a bit. We're not convinced it's really that dangerous of a foe, which suggests that we're not really convinced that God is that holy of a God when it comes down to it. And, and it might not be that way for every kind of sin. I mean, there are certain sins, it's like, there's no way I would ever be drawn to that. That's just, you know, but then there's other ones. It's like, well, that, that's more of a temptation. You know, maybe uh, we're not sure we agree with God's estimation on that particular behavior. Think of, you know, like a second opinion on what the Bible says about this or something. Maybe we, you know, have, we, we just feel too defeated to fight anymore. We spent our whole lives giving into a particular temptation and, and so much of our life feeling guilty about it that we simply lost the will to fight. We just don't have it in us. There's all sorts of ways we're, we're tempted to kind of take a soft stance towards sin, and it's easy to become discouraged in that battle. Uh, it's easy. I think all of us have probably been there. Some of us, no doubt, are there right now. It's like, do I really have it in me to fight another day against this, or do I just give in and go with it? But Paul's message in Colossians is not one of discouragement. It is a message of encouragement and hope. Sin is a dreadful enemy, but Christ is stronger than sin. And that's the, that's the point Paul's trying to drive home in this text. Yes, it's real, it is a foe, but Jesus is stronger than that. Through the gospel, God not only enlists us into the battle, he also supplies everything we need through the power of the Spirit and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And it's those two things, the power of the Spirit and the sufficiency of Christ, that's our battle plan. That's our war strategy when it comes to seeking holiness and fighting against sin. And those are the two things that I want to kind of look at together in Colossians. And first we'll look at the call to seek the Holy Spirit. That's our number one battle strategy. 
in pursuing Christ. We seek the Spirit. When Paul uh, wrote his letter to the Colossians, they were facing this, this ancient church in the city of Colossae. They were facing an interesting problem. It wasn't like the problem in Corinth where you know, people in the church were just walking in willful sin, ignoring God, living however they wanted to. Uh, the troublemakers in Colossae were actually trying to pursue God and seek holiness. As, as Paul describes in Colossians 2.23, they were trying to, quote, stop the indulgence of the flesh. That was their goal. The problem was that they were pursuing holiness and they were fighting sin apart from Jesus Christ. They were trying to do it on their own, according to human tradition, according to uh, their own rules and strength, and not according to Christ. And so Paul warns the church against them. Colossians 2.8. Go ahead and look down at your Bibles. and uh, Colossians 2.8-10. through 10. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That's the problem. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So their problem wasn't the temptation to just live however they wanted. There are plenty of churches that were struggling with that problem. Their problem was attempting to walk in holiness by not trusting in Jesus. And that was the problem. And if you step back, it's kind of like, well, that sounds like a dumb move. Well, yeah. But how common is it for us, though, when we're faced with something, and again, you know, the, the Spirit convicts us, we know we're not supposed to be walking down that road, and so we sit down and we take counsel together with ourselves or maybe with a friend or two to hold us accountable, and we come up with a strategy and we create new rules, well-meaning rules to, to protect us from sin, but rules that quite often go beyond what Scripture says. And, and so basically, it's kind of like, if the line of sin is here, I'm going to draw a new line over here so that I can't even get close to it. Which, depending on your situation, there may be wisdom in something like that for yourself personally. If I'm struggling with drunkenness, you know, maybe, and here's the line of drunkenness, maybe the line I'm going to draw to help guard against that is I'm not even going to have a single drink or I'm going to avoid certain kinds of restaurants and establishments. And, and there may be wisdom for me in that situation. But what can so easily happen is that we begin to do two things. We begin to think that because now we have this second line, we're safe. And we don't have to worry about that temptation anymore. We're protected. And then second, we begin to view this new line as the measure of holiness. And we begin to hold others up against that line and measure them according not to what God has said over here, but to the extra rules I've laid down over here. You see how that works? That's what was happening in Colossae. Instead of depending on Christ through the Spirit, they were depending on what Paul called human tradition and elemental spirits of the world. So basically, what we can do in and of ourselves to keep ourselves from sinning. 
human rules that at the end of the day created pride and judgmentalism, but were actually ineffective at keeping them from sin. Look at chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. Paul's, again, encouraging the Colossians against this way of thinking. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Those are human traditions, extra rules laid down to kind of promote holiness. And now people are being judged on whether or not they keep those extra rules. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He's the reality. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, Jesus, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If you want to grow in holiness, holding fast to Jesus is the key. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as though you were still alive in the world do you submit to its regulations? The, the, the rules for spirituality and holiness. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. These, these extra, this extra line here, they have an, indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So when I am trying to fight sin based out of my own rules, my own ingenuity, my own strength, and and, and I start drawing my extra lines to keep me away from it, at the end of the day, not only does that create a a self-righteous pride, as I look down at my nose Uh, look down my nose at anybody who doesn't keep my line, it doesn't actually stop me from sinning. It's like hiring a bank robber to design the security system for a bank. They know exactly how to get around that thing whenever they want because they made it. That's what it's like asking me to stop myself from sinning. I'm not strong enough. I can't do it. John Owen writes, mortification based on human strength carried out with man-made schemes, always ends in self-righteousness. That's what we get when we seek it, not out of the Spirit, but out of my flesh. Another Puritan author, John Flavel, warns us that, quote, we are more able to stop the sun in its course or make rivers run uphill as by our own skill and power to rule and order our hearts. Think about that. We need the Holy Spirit. We cannot do this out of our own strength. We cannot pursue holiness. Um, we cannot make the mistake that, that the Galatians, another church that Paul wrote a letter to, the mistake that they made, Galatians 3.3. 3. You want to see Paul hot and angry, read Galatians. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? I mean, you all recognize that in order to know Jesus and turn away from sin, you needed the Spirit of God to open your eyes to the reality of your sin and to see Christ for who he was. And now you think that this holiness thing, you've got that on your own? That's foolish, Paul says. 
We need the Spirit of God not just to know Jesus, but to walk with Jesus as well. And by the Spirit, we, we pursue holiness and we fight against sin by continuing to do what we did in the first place. And that's trusting the sufficiency of Christ. That's the second war tactic. Seek the Holy Spirit and trust the sufficiency of Christ. J.C. Ryle uh, writes, If we would be sanctified, if we would be made holy, useful to God, set apart from him, if we would be sanctified, our course is clear and plain. We must begin with Christ. We must go to him as sinners with no plea but that of our utter need and cast our souls on him by faith. Okay, we got that part. If we would grow in holiness and become more sanctified, we must continually go on as we began and be ever making fresh applications to Christ. We've said it a hundred times here, and we will say it a hundred thousand times more. We never outgrow our need for the gospel of Jesus. That's what... Ryle is saying there, the gospel that saves us is the gospel that sanctifies us as well. The good news of who Jesus is and all he's done for us in his life, his death and his resurrection. That's what I need to keep depending on in my fight for holiness, in my passion to follow Jesus and know him more to be depending on it in deeper and deeper ways. And so what in the world does that look like? What does it mean to trust the sufficiency of Christ as I seek God, as I pursue holiness? I think we could summarize it in in three ways here. And I've got them listed. Uh, Number one, look to the sufficiency of Christ's saving work for us. That's number one. Number two is to delight in the satisfying beauty of Christ himself. And then number three is to abide in Christ through the means of grace that God has given us. And we'll walk through what in the world does each of those mean. But number one, look to the sufficiency of Christ's saving work for us. That is Paul's main point in this letter. If there's one thing he can get across to the Colossian church, it's the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. That's what he wants them to see. And he applies that to this pursuit of holiness. So if you look again, Colossians 2, in in verses 6 and 7, Paul calls them to walk with the Lord. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Pursue a relationship with Jesus. Okay, great. How do we do that, Paul? Well, he continues again in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. All these things that people in the Colossian church were doing. Guard against that, for in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands 
by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross and disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. One of the reasons that sin retains such a grip on our lives is because we're still living as though we have to make it up to God for all the mistakes that we've made. And so it keeps us in debt to itself. That all of this, this whole pursuit of holiness, this whole thing rides on me because I'm the one who made the mistakes. I've got to make it right. And we, our, our conscience condemns us and convicts us. It reminds us of our failures. It, it tries us again and again for the same crimes in order to remove our focus from Christ's work for us and get us to fixate on our own performance for God, which ultimately feeds our guilt and discouragement because it's not enough, and eventually it empties us of our will to fight because it will never be enough. It's one of the devil's most effective tactics because it gives you the semblance of feeling like you're pursuing holiness, but it removes from you the hope of ever actually accomplishing it. It just enslaves you in the name of walking with Jesus. But the gospel tells us something very different. Not that it's up to me now to to make things right, but that Christ is our sufficient Savior. He's fully human, and therefore he's able to stand in our place as our representative before the Father. And yet, he's fully God at the same time, and therefore able to save sinful humans from God's wrath. If if you glance just back over that passage we read in the middle of Colossians 2, did you notice how many times the phrase, in him or with him, was repeated? Jesus is our sufficiency, and it's our union with him that makes this whole thing possible. The work of salvation has already been done, and through faith we are included in it, in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so our acceptance by God is not based on what we do for him, but what Christ has done for us. Trust the sufficiency of Christ. That's the first step in this tactic. John Owen tells us, avoid the entanglements of lust by filling your soul with the realization of all the provisions available in Christ Jesus. Remember what your Savior has done for you. That's what he's saying. Or Sinclair Ferguson, only when we turn away from looking at our sin to look at the face of God, to find his pardoning grace, do we begin to repent. Only by seeing that there is grace and forgiveness with him would we ever dare to repent and thus return to the fellowship and presence of the Father. If, you know, as a child, 
I make a mistake, I break something precious to my family, if I know that when I go into the room and tell my parents that I'm going to receive, you know, fill in the blank, whatever kind of terrible, egregious punishment I know is waiting, how quickly am I uh, going to be running into that room? I'm going to be running the opposite direction and hiding. But if I know that when I go into that room and, and tell my parents what I've done, that I, you know, they're going to be disappointed, they're going to be discouraged, but I'm going to be met with grace and love and forgiveness because they love me more than whatever it is I broke. That's the only, only if I'm convinced of that am I going to come forward and, and seek to repair that relationship with my parents. And the same thing is true. We've got to be convinced of the grace of God available through Jesus Christ or we will never begin to walk in the direction of holiness. So that's first. Second, delight in the satisfying beauty of Christ. Delight in the satisfying beauty of Christ. If we're honest, we will admit that sin is fun. If it wasn't, we wouldn't have a problem doing it. There's an allure. There's something that draws us, something we find or we think we will find satisfying in doing it. Even if it's only temporary and it will destroy us in the end, there's some sort of allure to it. We're drawn. And so it's not simply enough to try and weed out the desire for sin. We must replace that desire for something with something else, with something better than sin. The satisfying beauty of Christ. Tim Chester writes, quote, In a famous sermon entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, Thomas Chalmers argued that we can't, just simply tell ourselves to stop sinning. We need to direct the desires that sin falsely satisfies toward that which truly satisfies and liberates God himself. A renewed affection for God is the only thing that will expel sinful desires. We're like a child holding a rusty knife. What we grasp endangers us, but we don't want to let it go. If you shout at the child long enough, she might reluctantly hand it over. But offer her a lovely new toy, and the knife is quickly forgotten. Tell someone to stop sinning, and at best they may do so reluctantly and partially. But give them a vision of knowing God and his glory, and they'll gladly root out all that gets in the way of their relationship with God. We need a better desire. We need a longing for something that truly satisfies. We need a compelling vision of Christ. Do you have that kind of compelling vision? Do you see Christ for who he truly is in his beauty, his majesty, his glory? Are you convinced there's nothing better than him? Saying no to sin is ultimately about what I value the most. The satisfying beauty of Jesus or whatever satisfaction I think sin will give me. That's the question I wrestle with every time I make a decision of whether or not to live a certain way. 
We need to see Jesus for who he is in all of his beauty, in all of his majesty. And if we did, if we realized who he is, we wouldn't think twice about doing something against that. Consider your Savior. In Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Consider your Savior, Colossians 2, 9 through 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Consider your Savior, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's a picture of security for you. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Do you know this Savior Do you see him for who he truly is? Are are you floored by the fact that the God of the universe who created all this thing looks on us with favor and grace and love? It's in light of that, that consideration, that delight in Christ. It's in light of that that Paul then gives the command. To kill sin. It flows out of being convinced that Jesus is supreme and Jesus is enough, and there's nothing sin can give me that's better than Him. Colossians 3 5 Put to death, therefore, in light of all of that, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once too walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. There is nothing greater 
than Christ. Nothing. And no greater joy than being found in him. So, how do I fuel that affection for Christ? That kind of affection that then expels the desires for sin. Number three, abide in Christ through the means of grace. Abide in Christ through the means of grace. Jesus says in John fifteen four, Abide in me and I in you. A branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. It's that same thing, that apart from Christ, you cannot fight against sin and walk in holiness. So we must abide in him. Make your home in Jesus, in other words. That's what he's saying. Make your home in Jesus. The only way to fuel affections for God is by spending time with him. And we do that through the means of grace he's given us. And Sometimes we call this spiritual disciplines. That's fine. Uh, basically, we're talking about habits that, avail, that help us avail ourselves to the grace God has freely given. So, uh, what are those? Um, I'm just going to give you five this morning. There's lots of different lists, but, but I think these five are, are, are a helpful start. So, number one, the Bible. You cannot know God and grow in your affection for God without listening carefully and consistently to him in his word. And in the Bible, God is speaking. This book is revelation. And so Paul says in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we need to live in the word so that the word lives or dwells in us. That's number one. Number two, prayer. Shocking list here. Bible, prayer. Colossians 4.2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So we read the word, we listen to God, and then we pray, we talk to God. We express our dependence on him. We praise and exult in him for who he is and what he's done. We we take our cares and our questions and our temptations and our struggles to God, to the one who understands them and is able to do something about them. We pray. J.C. Ryle said that praying and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Prayer will consume sin or sin will choke prayer. Praying and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Number three, community. We do this, Bible and prayer, we do all of this best in community, in relationship with one another. The church is a family, and we need each other in our fight against sin. We need to trust the gospel together, and we need to speak it into each other's lives. What what lies am I believing about myself or my identity or about this or about that? That I need others to come along and say, hey, remember who Jesus is and what he did for you. You don't need to go that direction. We have something better. Now, I could stand up here and I could preach that to you. I need you to preach it to me too because it's so easily forgotten. We need the community of faith together, whether that's a 
conversation over coffee, a Bible study, gathered worship. We need each other. Colossians 3, 12 through 14 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Those are all commands that can only be obeyed in community. We need that love together as a family. So, Bible, word, prayer, community. And one of the ways that we live out all three of those things is number four, worship. Worship. Tim Chester writes that when we worship God, we're reminding ourselves that God is bigger and better than anything sin offers. Worship isn't just an affirmation that God is good. It's an affirmation that God is better. It tunes our hearts. When we gather together like this, it tunes our hearts to the bigness and the glory and the grace of God, which is why it's so important to make gathering for worship a regular habit. It reminds and it rehearses the gospel story to us over and over again. Through song, through prayer, through preaching, through sacraments like the Lord's table, which we're going to celebrate in a minute. So Bible, prayer, Community, worship, number five, service. Service, serving God. We often think of service as, a, as the product of putting away our sin. So we stop doing sin so we can serve God. It's actually also a means to that. Serving takes our eyes off of ourselves and puts them onto Christ and others. And sometimes that's exactly what we need in our fight against sin, to, to stop navel-gazing over how bad we are and start loving someone and remembering what it's like to actually live and love God and serve others, what this whole thing's really about. Colossians three twenty-three to 24 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So Bible prayer, community, worship, service. This is old-fashioned biblical Christianity. There's, I wish I could tell you there was a special trick to making holiness easier or fast track, you know, the, the high-occupancy vehicle lane or something like that where we can get there quicker. There's no silver bullets here apart from the gospel of Jesus availing ourselves to it by every means of grace God has given us, putting sin to death, delighting in God our Savior, by seeking the Spirit and trusting the sufficiency of Christ. It's good, old-fashioned, biblical Christianity, walking with God, taking the gospel to heart. One final illustration as we close. In Greek mythology, the sirens would sing enchanting songs, drawing sailors irresistibly toward the rocks and certain shipwreck. Odysseus filled his crew's ears with wax and had them tie him to the mast. This is like the approach of legalism. We bind ourselves up with laws and disciplines 
in a vain attempt to resist temptation. Orpheus, on the other hand, played such beautiful music on his harp that the sailors ignored the seduction of the siren's song. This is the way of faith. The grace of the gospel sings a far more glorious song than the enticements of sin. If only we have the faith to hear its music. May God give us the grace and the faith to hear the music of the gospel every day, drawing our hearts to that which is better. Through the gospel, God not only enlists us in the battle for holiness, but he supplies everything we need through the spirit and the sufficiency of his son. As we turn our hearts to the Lord's table this morning, we're going to experience that music in another format. We go from listening to tasting, if you will. Tasting and seeing that the Lord is good by celebrating the gospel in this tangible way. And as we do that, I want to give all of us uh, a chance to reflect silently on what we've been talking about, again, about this struggle for holiness and this battle against sin. Uh, this is not sideline stuff. We are at war. And if you're here and, and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you need to know that God will punish sin. It is an offense against his person and his kingdom and his glory. But in Jesus, we have a sufficient Savior. There is refuge in the Son who loves us and who died in our place. You need to hear that message. And if you're here and Jesus is your Savior and King, you also need to hear the message that sin is still a deadly enemy. And we cannot just wink at it or let our guard down, but we must continue to fight. But we have a Savior who's stronger than sin and who gives us the strength and grace for that fight. And we have each other. We're not in it alone. We need the Spirit and the sufficiency of Christ. And so what I want to do is just give us a minute to reflect quietly and pray about what we've been talking about. This battle against sin. Ask God to search your hearts, which is a painful prayer, but it's a healing one. And what the Spirit exposes, confess that to the Lord in repentance. Take it to the king who has already paid the price for it and ask for the grace to walk in newness. Listen again to the music of the gospel that God sings over us as he exposes sin in our hearts as we take it to Jesus. Listen to the music of the gospel that says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Let's pray silently together for a moment. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. He will not keep his anger forever. 
He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Lord, help us take seriously our sin. Lord, help us take seriously your holiness and what it means that we would turn away from you even in little ways. Help us see it for what it is. The offense, the danger. But Lord, help us take just as serious your grace, which is greater than all our sin. As we come to this table, God, we ask that you would nourish our hearts with your gospel. We praise you for the love that you have poured out through your son on our behalf. We thank you for the bread, which is a sign pointing to his body broken for us. We thank you for the cup, a sign of Christ's blood poured out for our sins. We thank you that you have not dealt with us according to our sin, but by your mercy, you dealt with your son according to our sin, that we might become children of God. Thank you for his love and willingness in laying down his life for us. May we, through your grace, walk in that newness of life. Enjoy the relationship you have saved us for. Bring honor to you and show your love to one another. May we never stop marveling at your grace, God. So be glorified in the celebration. 